Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. It's a beautiful day. <laughs> hey! <laughs> he says, not stepping one foot outside of this air-conditioned apartment. I was just going to say, as long as you're inside, it's also really gross here. Ooh, that heat. I know. It's crazy. Just because I have the privilege of working from home, I like had these appointments and stuff, and I had to get into like an incredibly hot car. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and like I have leather seats, and I was just like, oh my, oh my god, <laughs> and just like sweating so much driving home. Like the AC couldn't overcome. <laughs> the heat i just like walked into the apartment and i was like why i know i remember one time when i was living out there and working where you are now and i had left a fast food cup in the cup holder in the car and thankfully it was empty because when i came back to the car after being in a meeting for a couple of hours the cup had started to melt <laughs> the cup itself i was like what how how is that a thing unacceptable (laughs) (laughs) it makes no sense i mean and rhode island is supposed to be not like this it is not supposed to be like this so my new thing is like surprise you live in virginia now because that (laughs) is what our weather is like now is what I remember Virginia being like when I was a kid. Surprise, it's Phoenix now. I know, I know, I know, which is why we need to move north. Not fix global warming, but, like, move north. Or have enough money to happily and comfortably live in San Francisco. Mm. I saw that map that, like, the whole country's on fire and San Francisco is 65 degrees. (laughs) But 65 and foggy, boo. Oh, I love it. Yeah? Ooh, you're one Who of those. Who needs the sun? Oh, God, no. I just, I'm like Goldilocks. I don't want it too hot. I don't want it too cold. <laughs> I don't want it too humid. But I definitely don't want it cloudy or rainy all the time. Like two or three times a year, that's plenty for me. No. I'm only happy when it rains. Oh my gosh. So we're not the same person because that's not me at all. It's okay to have fights like this. (laughs) I know. I'm very disappointed in you. (laughs) Speaking of, we haven't talked about personality tests in a while and my, we go through Harry Potter waves here in my house and my older daughter is kind of not over it, but like it's not as big a deal as it was but now the younger one is getting into it so we all had to make accounts in world of wizardry which is the new pottermore to see like take the official test because we had all taken whatever tests you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so um my youngest took a whatever test and came back as slytherin And (laughs) so there was much discussion and I'm obviously Ravenclaw. And so 
my older daughter was kind of basically telling her that she was bad <laughs> because she's Slytherin. <laughs> and so I was like, well, let's take the official one. And if you are, you can talk to Andrew because Andrew is Slytherin. And like, you can have a guide in the wizardry world <laughs> in Andrew. But she actually came back as Hufflepuff, which surprised me and was so cute. <laughs> It's such a weird bag now because of J.K. Rowling being an absolute psycho. I mean, I I feel like it's movies and TV that pretend like the pandemic isn't happening and they just live in this alternate world where masks aren't a thing. I think we just have to do that with her. Like, it's a thing and she's not a part of it. Yeah. In my mind. (laughs) Separating the art from the artist. But also not the new movies, because they also are bad. Are they? I haven't seen them. I haven't even watched the latest ones. Like, from the get, I was like, oh, this is weak. Well, also Johnny Depp. I mean, right? He's in the newer, or he was in the first of the newer ones. Yeah, just so many, so many things with that franchise. (laughs) I loved the HBO special, where it was almost as though she didn't exist and the like scenes that she was in always had the disclaimer filmed in 2019. <laughs> this is the one where the actors talked about the process and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I didn't watch it. I didn't it. expect it's great. I I I expected it to be like fine, mm-hmm. but it was really done in a nice way. I didn't watch it, but my kids did, and this kicked off a whole like my older daughter wanting to be. A child actor and me basically murdering her soul by not <laughs> allowing that <laughs> they don't seem to turn out well often <laughs> i know and how to i mean also she's still young enough that she thinks that making a movie would probably be like the experience of being in the finished product like uh, yeah right like she doesn't understand how the sausage is made. And so I'm trying to describe that to her without killing her love of sausage. But it would be fun to make the sausage sometime. Yeah. And <laughs> I was not like, as a child. Yeah. I was like, when you're a grown up, if that's what you want to do, like, you know, or even an older teenager, I was like, we can try like community theater. You know, I'm not opposed to acting, just not the business, not now. Because once we turn this podcast into a TV show, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, then but we'll have all the inside scoop. Because we're grown ups, so yeah, yeah. We I, we could set her up with like I don't know famous people. We could do that whole nepotism thing. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice for somebody. I know, right? Uh, somewhere and then. Her, like, billion-dollar podcast industry, they'll be like, it's because your mom. Yeah, totally. I know. They owe it all to me. Well, I mean, they're already living a pretty good life, thanks to me. And, of course, my (laughs) husband. (laughs) Way better than what I had. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So. No, uh, no dead chickens and uh head cheese pig heads on the countertop no no like getting locked out at eight in the morning and not allowed back in the house until lunchtime 
no, none of that. That was a legit. It's <laughs> like, but I have to pee. And now looking back, I don't know what I did. I guess I held it. I don't know. But like now you would get in trouble if anyone knew that you were making your kid hold in their pee to be out. Like if you locked your kid out of the house, I feel like, you know, you might get the Department of Child Services at your doorstep at some point. There's some easier male privilege. So I do. Like, yes. Well, yes. You just peed. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose, you know, girls could do that too. But yeah, it's a little trickier. Well, and also rural privilege. Yes. Yeah. You could just childhood. do whatever. <laughs> childhood, childhood. It's not like it used to be. It most certainly is not. <laughs> For better and worse. True. Yeah, there are definitely things that happen now that I would not. I mean, just like having a phone in a camera in your phone. Like I think of all and you had this when you were in college, so you know, but I think of all the dumb fucking shit that I did in college that I'm so glad there's no photographic evidence of. Well, and it existed, but like it still is not the same like my college experience to now yeah i mean like 4k streaming video <laughs> and right, right right easy uploads like it was still cumbersome with low resolution <laughs> digital right. and then the picture it's like is that me or is that a thumb it's hard to tell <laughs> the quality was so bad where now it's just instantly on twitter uh no god no Absolutely not. So not. Well, that also was a time where you could just disappear. I know. We may or may not be talking about a time like that today. Mm. You want to go go straight in? I, I guess. I was yeah. like, what else could I talk about? <laughs> I mean, I could talk about watching paint dry, but probably no one wants to hear about that. I do think that people are going to be interested in what we have to present today. And we're doing an episode like we did a few weeks back where we mix it up a little and we're doing two cases today, two unrelated cases. And I'm going to take one and Andrew's going to take the other. Cases that maybe don't have as much pop cultural ripplage as as it should or you know maybe not as many people know about it mm -hmm. yeah all right so i will begin so today i'm going to be talking about the oldest unsolved missing person case in massachusetts so we're talking today about the case of joan reesh joan reesh was born with the name Joan Carolyn Bard in Brooklyn, New York in 1930. And her parents were Harold and Josephine Bard. And she had a, a normal kind of early childhood life. And when she was around nine or 10, her parents moved with her and her siblings to New Jersey. And in 1940, 
kind of catastrophe befell the family, and her parents were killed in a home fire. Ugh. Yeah. And later, the fire was described as suspicious, but I couldn't really find any information on original information on that fire. But it came out um, during the investigation of Joan's disappearance that that was a suspicious fire. And after the fire, Joan was adopted by an aunt and uncle. But before that adoption went through, Joan spent time in foster care. And again, later it was reported that while in foster care, she had been sexually abused. Now, I mention it here for a couple of reasons. One, I think it goes into kind of who she is, but this is a point that was brought up later during the investigation about her disappearance. But after that time, she went and lived with an aunt and uncle. She took their last name, which was Natris, and she kind of lived out the rest of her childhood with them in, I believe, in Pennsylvania. In 1952, she graduated from Wilson College, which is an all-women's college in Pennsylvania, and she studied English literature. After she graduated, she went uh, to New York City, where she began working in publishing. She wanted to become a book editor. So she began as a secretary, and she kind of moved and worked her way up, um, and she then became an editorial assistant and she worked initially at Harcourt Brace and World, which is now part of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And she also worked at the Thomas Crowell Company, which is now part of Harper and Row. In 1956, just four years after she graduated from college, she met and and in short order, married one of the executives at this company, and his mm -hmm. name is Martin Reich. When they got married, she essentially stopped working in her field and became a homemaker. They moved at that time then to Ridgefield, Connecticut, and she had very shortly, within I think the next year, their first child, who was a girl named Lillian. The next year, in 1959, they had a son named David. In April 1961, the family relocated again, and they moved to Lincoln, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. I think at that time, it was probably more, uh, it was more rural and less kind of an immediate suburb. Now, mm -hmm. with kind of urban sprawl, it really is an immediate suburb of Boston, and by all accounts, they really easily integrated into the community. Joan became active in the League of Women Voters, and Martin switched companies, and he began working uh, with a company called Fitchburg Paper Company. And Joan really just kind of leaned into being a stay-at-home mom and a homemaker, and she did speak with some friends about potentially going into teaching when the children got older. Mm -hmm. But at this time, the children were still four and two, so very little and required a lot of attention. So now we're going to kind of jump forward to the events of the disappearance. And we're going to go to 
October 24th, 1961. So only about six months after they had moved to town. And it was a normal day in October, which is kind of brisk and, and cool in New England, but not cold, not yet winter. Mm-hmm. And it started as just kind of a normal Tuesday. Martin had a business trip to New York City to visit some potential vendors and I think to go to company headquarters. And so he left the family home at a little before seven in the morning for an eight o'clock flight, which that alone, I mean, it's such like a little detail, but now, you know, I've lived in this area for a very long time to take an eight o'clock flight from the Boston airport and to be commuting from the Western suburbs. I mean, there's no way you could leave an hour and 10 minutes before a flight and make that flight, but different times. Um, so he left a little before seven, he got on an eight o'clock flight and went to New York for the day at around seven, Joan got up and started making breakfast for herself and for the kids. And she did some kind of light housework, but she had a dentist appointment at nine 30 that morning. So she kind of tidied up around the house, got her and the kids ready And then she took David across the street to a neighbor's house and David stayed with the neighbor and she and Lillian went into town for this dentist appointment. Mm -hmm. And I've seen the dentist reported as Goldstein in some places and I've seen it reported as Dr. Anderson in other places. I'll come back to this. Um, This really kind of comes up in terms of different theories that are out there. So around... 920, she she talks on the phone with a friend who lives in nearby Bedford and um, and then she takes David across the street and then she departs with Lillian to go to the dentist's office. She did make it to the dentist's office. We know that there's a record of her appointment. She had a, a cavity filled and kind of did some other work and I think maybe possibly did some work or took some, did a quick examination of Lillian in preparation for her first dentist appointment, which was to be coming up. Mm-hmm. Then she paid and made a follow-up appointment for a couple of weeks from that day. And then she left between ten fifteen and ten forty-five. She and Lillian went around Bedford doing a little shopping and she went to the bank and kind of just did some little low-key errands. Yeah. Then they returned to another nearby town called Concord, which, again, is right in this. These are all very close little towns, which are west of Boston. And she went to the supermarket in Concord. Now, at around 11 a.m. that morning, the milk delivery person made the regularly scheduled visit to the house, picked up the milk bottles, and left the fresh milk um, on the front doorstep. Mm-hmm. And the delivery person reported not having seen Joan that morning. Also right around 11, um, the, mail, the mail delivery person left mail in the mailbox, and that was kind of across the street and diagonal. And the mail carrier also reported not seeing any sign of Joan that day. Now, just to set the scene, you know, I mentioned that this is this is a suburb of Boston, but it was certainly then much more rural. And even today, it's a pretty affluent community. And so it's known for 
bigger plots of land than you might expect in in a big urban suburb. Um, and it's also very wooded. And so her driveway, I think I read somewhere, was about 60 feet long. So when we're thinking across the street neighbors, there's a lot of trees, like a longish mm-hmm. driveway for a suburb. We're not talking about kind of a modern suburb um, or a more middle class suburb where the houses are very close to one another. So again, you know, the the mail carrier would have put the mail across the street kitty corner from the entrance to the driveway and the house would have been at a distance. But the mail carrier reported not seeing her either. Yeah. At just a little past 11, 11.05 or so, Joan returned home and she went and picked up David from the neighbor's house across the street. And then she went back to her house with both kids in tow. At around 11.15, a person, a delivery pickup person from a local dry cleaner came by the house and did a regular, a regularly scheduled pickup drop off of dry cleaning. Mm-hmm. So this person actually did go into the house and he reported that that was the custom. Uh, Joan never kept the house locked. It was just his custom to kind of not come in, get what he needed, drop off the delivery. And he had, you know, a quick exchange of words with her and he reported later that everything seemed completely normal. Mm Mm-hmm. So a little after that, Joan went, you know, she's settling into the house. She took off her trench coat, which is what she had worn out that morning, and she hung it in its regular place in a closet in the downstairs closet. That was also where she kept her pocketbook, and she she hung it in there. And for folks who are not from New England, pocketbook is another word for purse. <laughs> <laughs> um, she hung her purse slash pocketbook in that closet, And then she changed from kind of the clothes that she had worn out to more like house clothes and sneakers instead of nice shoes. So again, I mean, we're getting a real feel for what the early 60s were like. And it's very kind of like leave it to Mm beaver-esque. You know, you would, when you're going outside of the house, even if it's just to run errands, you would put on nicer clothes and then come back and put on like more cash clothes. So she does that, and then she begins to make lunch for herself and for the kids. Around 1, she puts uh, David down for a nap in his crib upstairs. So it's a two-story house in Cape Cod style, if people know what that looks like. And we're going to put on social some pictures of the house so you can see what it looked like. Um, But she puts him upstairs in his crib for his nap. And later, Martin reported that David usually napped until about 2 o'clock. So she puts him down, and then around 1, the neighbor across the street brings her son, Douglas, who is 4, over to Joan's house to play with Lillian. So Douglas and Lillian are about the same age. Douglas comes over, and they begin playing in the front yard and kind of driveway area. So the neighbor across the street could periodically kind of look out and see the children playing, and Joan could also keep an eye on them. Again, it's 1961. This is a time in which two four-year-olds could play out in the front yard unsupervised mostly (laughs) (laughs) without any kind of big fear of anything happening. Now, during this time, Joan went outside herself, and she did a little bit of kind of gardening, pruning, pulling weeds, like light yard work. 
and was kind of in and out doing stuff inside the house and stuff outside the house. But this is when things start getting strange. So a little before 2 p.m., Joan walks Lillian, her daughter, and Douglas, the neighbor's son, down her driveway and across the street and tells them to play at the neighbor's yard. What she doesn't do, though, is she doesn't knock on the door and tell the neighbor that the kids are now playing over there. She just takes them there and they had no interaction. The little girl, Lillian, reported later that her mom said to her, I'll be back and play here. Then a little after two, so maybe 15 minutes after this, the neighbor across the street looks up from her kitchen window and she notices she notices Joan out outside and she sees her, as she reports it, running with her arms outstretched and she saw something red. And so she, in her mind, thought that Joan was playing with the kids and kind of running after the kids and one of the kids was wearing something red because she saw kind of a flash of red and then Joan running with her arms kind of out as if she was chasing after little kids. And she said that she seemed a little kind of preoccupied or dazed somehow, but mm-hmm. not to the level. I think it was the kind of thing where, in retrospect, she could call this out. But in the moment, she didn't get a feeling like something was wrong. She didn't yeah. stop what she was doing to see what was going on. And now this sighting and the reason we have kind of so much detail on it and the outstretched arms and like little details of all of this is because this is the last known sighting of Joan. Yeah. So at about 325, another neighbor who was next door, the daughter who was 13 at the time was coming home from school and she had gotten off the bus and was walking up her own driveway. And she reported that there was a car parked in the Risha's driveway behind Joan's car um, and close to the street. She described it as a light blue or gray sedan. And I think she even described it as being an an Oldsmobile. So they had a Mm -hmm. pretty good description. It was dirty and, you know, she was able to give a fair amount of detail on that. At 3.30 or about 3.30, 3.40, another neighbor who lived on the street was driving down the street just doing errands, and she slowed down to let that car back out of one of the driveways, so either the Reese's driveway or the neighbor with the girl who had, had seen it coming home. She couldn't remember which one because the driveways were close together. She slowed down to let that car pull out in front of her and drive away. Then at 3.40, the neighbor across the street with the little boy where Lillian was still playing walked Lillian over to Joan's yard to return her because she needed to run errands herself. So she was going to mm-hmm. take her own child and she was returning Lillian to her to her house. Again, she took her to the yard but didn't go in to talk to Joan. She just said, okay, go home now and <laughs> left her in the yard. It feels insane. <laughs> like yeah. 
I mean, on the one hand, I can sort of imagine like you walk them to the front door, it's your neighbor, and you like watch them go in the house, but right. it still just feels weird because they're four-year-olds. Right. Well, I mean, think about it now. If I go out and do something with a friend and I drop them off at their house, I typically wait and make sure that they get inside. Mm-hmm. But I guess her car was there, so... yeah. Her car was there. And I think this is an important point because this will come up later. Some folks make make a lot of the fact that Joan didn't tell the neighbor that she was taking her daughter over there at that time. But I think this shows that that was just something that they did. They just, you know, the kids mm-hmm. were allowed to do that. And the neighbor across the street reported that when she took Lillian back to the yard, there wasn't another car in their driveway. It was just Joan's car. So she obviously thought Joan was there, and she drove away to run these errands. So around 4.15, so, you know, maybe 30 minutes later, not a lot later, she came back home with her son Douglas, and Lillian came alone across the street. And she told the neighbor that her mom wasn't home and that the house was a mess. And this is reported in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. I've seen, and if you go and read about this case, she reportedly told the neighbor that there was paint all over the kitchen. But I actually got a hold of the police report, and that is not what I saw in the neighbor's statement. The neighbor said that the daughter really just said that her mom wasn't there and the house was a mess. So you know, fairly alarmed, the neighbor goes across and goes into the kitchen and sees that it is a mess. Things are topsy-turvy. It looks like there's been a struggle. I'll talk about it a little bit more in a bit, but the phone had been ripped off the wall. And like most disturbingly of all, there's blood everywhere. So at 4.33, the neighbor goes back to her own house and calls the police. Police come to the scene, and then around 548, state police are called. And so it escalates kind of from there. Now, when they get there, they initially think that someone has come in and attacked Joan. And she kind of left in a daze and is maybe dead somewhere. There was also some initial speculation that maybe it was a suicide And so they were really expecting from the very beginning to do a search of the immediate surroundings and find her body somewhere. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of their first approach, and they start combing the area. Again, it's a wooded area, so it's not unpopulated, but it's wooded, and you could easily be not lost, but, you know, not obviously laying somewhere. Yeah. You know, they would have to kind of look for you. And so, as I mentioned before, the phone was ripped off the wall, and I have seen the crime scene photos, and what it is is it's those kind of old-time phones where the phone is attached to the wall, and the, mm-hmm. the speaker is on. So, the whole phone wasn't ripped off, but the spe- the handle and the speaker was ripped from that, like, curly cue mm-hmm. thing. There were blood smears. There were blood drips. And paper towel had been taken out, and it looked like someone had tried to kind of clean up. But really strangely, in all of this blood, there were no footsteps at all. No no foot tracks in the blood whatsoever. 
Also, what was kind of strange is that there were droplets and pools and puddles in the kitchen. And then there were droplets leading up to the crib where David was. So on the second floor and then back down again and then out to the car. And there were some smudges on the car trunk and hood. And that's where they ended was at the car. And then they didn't go any farther than that. Some other strange things that they found inside the house were the trash can, which was normally kept under the sink cabinet, was taken out and was in the middle of the room. And in there were the handle to the phone or the receiver. I'm having trouble thinking what (laughs) it's called. It's been so long. The receiver to the phone is in the trash. There's some kind of normal trash items in the trash can. There's a bottle of hard liquor. And then there are several cans of beer, like empty cans, empty beer cans. And later they talked to Martin about this. They kind of found it, you know, a little odd. Mm -hmm. And he reported that the bottle of bourbon is what it was. They had finished the night before together and had put that in there. But the beer, he had no idea where the beer had come from. They didn't have beer in the house. Joan didn't like beer. And it during the course of the investigation, police went to Concord to the grocery store where she had been that morning, and she hadn't purchased beer. Oh, so, interesting. yeah, no one has any idea why the beer was there or how it had gotten there. So that's another kind of strange piece so once the the police have kind of done the immediate search of the area, they begin escalating. The first thing, of course, they do is they try to locate the the husband, Martin. So the neighbor calls his his office and they let her know that he's out of town. They reach out to him in New York and he gets on the first flight to come back to Boston. When they speak to him, he tells them kind of what he knows, which is just that he had left that morning And then he gave a lot of information about what her normal habit would be, Mm -hmm. how she kind of did things during the day, what the timing was. But he reported that, you know, there were no problems in the marriage. Everything had seemed perfectly normal. She hadn't been acting strangely. There was kind of nothing to really give them any leads to go on. So within a pretty short period of time, the police got a couple of different calls about people having seen Joan on the day Mm -hmm. of her disappearance after her last known sighting that we talked about, which was around two. So someone reported that at 2.45, a woman who was wearing clothing similar to what she had been reported as having been wearing and a handkerchief over her head and tied around her chin like she was trying to kind of hide a little bit. They were seen walking along the north side of Route 2A West, which had a junction with their road, Old Bedford Road. And this person reported that she was kind of wandering, looked kind of out of it, and was hunched over like she was cold, but appeared like unkempt, as if maybe having been through a struggle or not like to the point, I think, of being unhoused, but you know, not polished like a woman walking out doing errands. Mm -hmm. 
The other thing to note is that this road is a state highway and it's fairly busy and well trafficked, not just kind of a neighborhood street that you would go on a stroll. Mm -hmm. Another report was received that a similarly dressed woman was seen walking north on Route 128, which is a major highway. And part of it was still kind of under construction at that time. And this person was seen between 3.15 and 3.30. And they were reported as having blood running down their legs or maybe mud, some dark substance kind of running down the legs. Mm -hmm. And this report also had the woman as being disoriented and kind of clutching their stomach. Then there was another sighting of someone fitting this kind of description around 4.30, and that person was also walking along Route 128 at a different section of it. Now, they had the report of the car that the neighbor's daughter had seen in the driveway, and they got some reports from other people in the neighborhood when they canvassed that they had seen a similar two-tone car that was parked nearby. It had stopped um, around 4.15, A man got out of it, cut some Mm -hmm. branches from the nearby woods, and then put the branches in his car and got back in and drove away. Another person said they saw a light blue Ford sedan parked nearby at around 245. So, like, some of these I think are in conflict with one another, but some of them are similar enough that, you know, they're kind of getting a sense that this person, this car was real. Yeah, something. 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 There were other reports, though, that the police said later that these, this car that some, one of these reports at least was a car that had been an undercover police car that was reporting to the scene after the neighbor had called it in. But mm. if you remember, that didn't happen until 433. And none of these really happened after that. This was all before. And so the witnesses really stuck by their version of events that this happened before the police had been called. Now, the blood evidence, there was a lot, like I said, of blood, blood evidence. There was a palm print and a couple of partial fingerprints in blood, I think, on the phone or nearby. But they didn't have any of Joan's fingerprints. So they weren't able to identify them as hers. Mm -hmm. I read in some other places that, you know, they had maybe just a thumbprint of hers and they were able to eliminate. This part is a little bit unclear. I also don't totally understand why they wouldn't have been able to fingerprint the rest of the house, eliminate the kids and Martin, and then whatever remained was Joan and match. But, you know, I didn't get to that granular level of research. Essentially, they have prints that they don't know who they belong to. Yeah. They did take them, though, and they tried to compare them. So they took prints from, I think it was about 4,000 people in the town and neighboring communities and tried to match, and they weren't able to find a match. They also, again, as I noted before, found it very strange that there were no footprints in the blood. There were, you know, it wasn't, a complete bloodbath if you if you look at the crime scene photos but it was a fair amount and you would think that someone pacing around disorientedly 
would step in them. And Mm -hmm. if not, it would seem that someone had taken some care to not step in them. So that was something that really came up a lot in later theories. But also they found paper towels, as I said before, but also they call it a coverall. So I don't know if it's an overall or like a onesie of David's that had also been used to wipe up some blood that was just kind of left on the floor. Now, as they start investigating and really finding no leads, they start doing, I think, what they often do in investigations like this. They start looking into her life to see if there are any kind of clues to what might have been going on. Did she have like a secret life that no one knew about? And so one of the things that came up that they found was curious was that this that summer, the summer before, and they had only been in town a couple of months, she had gone to the library, gotten a library card, and had checked out like over 20 books. And many of them, if not all of them, were true crime. And many of them had the theme of disappearance people disappearing and there was even one which was called into thin air and i couldn't find the author of this and there are a lot of books titled into thin air so i couldn't find the book but it's about a woman who left behind blood smears and a towel and went missing intentionally to start a new life so this evidence starts taking the investigators kind of down a different road Could this be a staged situation? Mm -hmm. Now, again, at the time, getting a divorce was not an easy thing. You had to be able to prove that there was some kind of infidelity, abuse, something. And particularly if you were a woman, it would be difficult to get a divorce. So investigators started pursuing a theory that was around this idea that maybe she had wanted to disappear and start over. They were able to find some friends who reported that she was not satisfied being a homemaker and she kind of regretted giving up her career in New York and essentially was bored and not happy with the life that she had. They also found lots of friends who said she loved being a mother and she would never, ever leave her children intentionally. And they also reported that the marriage was happy, as Martin did. But, I mean, as we know now, there's no, there's no real knowing what goes on inside a house unless you're in it yourself. Mm-hmm. So also during this time, they discovered that Joan had told friends about the sexual abuse that she suffered as a child. And so out of this came this idea that perhaps she had suffered some kind of injury And then because of maybe trauma in her childhood or this kind of more minor injury had then turned into amnesia or some kind of a blackout and that she was injured, disoriented, and and kind of lost her memory of who she was. And so this theory fitted in with these kind of sightings of her around. The question still remained, though, even if that were the case, what had become of her? Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, that this highway that was nearby was still under construction. So one theory was that she had wandered trying to get help for herself and had kind of 
stumbled into a construction pit and had been covered up accidentally. Okay. Yeah. So that's one theory. The other theory is just that she just wandered and wandered and didn't know who she was and she could still be out there not knowing who she is. This theory, I mean, we'll come to the wild speculating part here pretty soon, but this theory just kind of makes no sense because this was a very big deal. Like, white, wealthy, suburban Mm -hmm. housewife goes missing, bloody kitchen. Like, as you might imagine, everyone was looking for her. But this just gives a sense of kind of the different kind of paths that they're taking and the more time went on the more kind of outlandish the theories became yeah but after the sightings of that day that were mentioned of a woman kind of in in the light colored coat walking looking disoriented there were never any sight reported sightings of joan again ever after that So they cleared Martin. Um, You know, he had been in New York the whole time. He had a solid alibi. They cleared the delivery people who had come. They all had alibis. They kind of ticked all of the boxes that you would Mm -hmm. have in a normal investigation like this. And besides this kind of idea that maybe she was disenchanted with being a stay-at-home mom, they didn't find any kind of big secret life that she had. You know, her childhood was maybe a little bit more troubled and traumatic than other people living in that kind of class at that time. But there wasn't any big secret that they could Mm -hmm. ever prove or find. There was lots of speculation, but there was never anything that they could find. Now, if we go into the more wild speculation and Reddit rabbit holes and all of that... (laughs) There was speculation that perhaps she had either had an illegal abortion, because of course this was before Roe, she had had an illegal abortion and was injured internally, and that accounted for the blood and disorientation, but also perhaps she had called the doctor who had performed it, that was the car that was in the driveway, once it became clear she was not going to live, then the doctor had to like hide the body because otherwise he would get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some parts of this that kind of support that. You know, the sighting with blood running down the legs, the blood in the house, the holding something red. I mean, people will go so far as to say, was she holding a fetus if she had had a spontaneous miscarriage? I mean, there's just a lot around this one couple of things though one martin didn't know her to be pregnant so that was one he also said that if she were she would have wanted it she loved children she loved their children again like you never know what's in someone's mind but that was that was his perception of the situation but also when the investigators were done with the crime scene they estimated that it was about a half a pint of blood that was spread around the residence so not nothing, but definitely not life-threatening, and also mm-hmm. probably not an amount that would leave you disoriented. So certainly if she had fallen and hit her head and that's where the blood had come from, that could leave someone disoriented. But it doesn't sound like it was enough blood in and of itself to make yeah. you not know what's going on. The other thing is, you know, just if we look at human behavior, 
would someone schedule to have an illegal abortion while their youngest was down for a nap? Like, you know, it just, I mean, I don't know, but it seems like a strange time and place to kind of do that, to have them come to your house. I mean, some folks say, well, maybe the dentist, because sometimes in those days, dentists did them too, because obviously they go to medical school as well. But again, there was never any evidence that supported the fact that she was pregnant or any kind of notion that she had had a procedure like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess the husband being out of town would be maybe you can't have a scenario where you're actually alone without Mm -hmm. the children. Mm -hmm. But again, it's just speculating. Yeah. It's, it's all pure speculation. No evidence at all. Of course, then the theory that she had left intentionally just would never die. And so much is made of those books. Now, of course, the kind of black humor joke of people who are interested in true crime now is if that were the bar, then if any of us went missing, people would assume because we all (laughs) consume that kind of thing now. It is definitely interesting, but it feels like too much to make that leap, especially that She studied English literature in college. She was an editor. She could have been researching writing a book because if you can't yet become a teacher, you're a little bit bored at home with your kids. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. kind of a tried and true thing that stay-at-home moms have done throughout history to have a bit of a career. So, I mean, that could have totally been research. But again, there's just no hard evidence we could tell lots of different kinds of stories that would fit the facts yeah. because there are so few facts. So a lot of different stories could fit. Now, one thing that I found when I really went down the the Reddit rabbit hole is that you will find comments, and I'm not going to link to them, but I mean, they're easy enough to find if you go in and, and look at this, is there's a whole kind of series of threads in Reddit that are written by people who claim to be from that area and have lived there. Mm-hmm. And they talk about it as if the case was solved. So they would talk about it as, well, everyone in Lincoln knows what really happened, but the family wanted it hushed up because it was a scandal. And basically that is that Joan was having an affair with a man And he had come over either for a rendezvous or to kind of have it out. And he killed her and he took the body and disposed of it. So, I mean, make of that what you will. Again, no evidence other than people local to the case who were there at the time and knew the players said that it was kind of an open secret in the town. But the truth of the matter is that Martin never believed that she was dead. Martin refused to believe that she was dead. He held fast to the amnesia theory Mm -hmm. and he didn't move and he never changed his phone number from the phone number that they had. And he continued to believe that she was alive somewhere until his death in 2009. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So sad. So sad and so mysterious. You know, he raised the children. He never remarried. And the children grew up and had, you know, a fairly normal upbringing. The four-year-old daughter was able to give some evidence about what had happened that day and what her mom had said to her the last time she saw her. 
But I'm sure as she got older, she didn't have a memory or much, if any, memory of that time as four-year-olds yeah. usually don't. And, of course, David had no memory at all. He was only two. So interesting. I mean, like you said, you could make any theory. I mean, Boston's close to New York. He's like goes to New York, secretly comes home to kill his wife. Like, uh, <laughs> Well, they did run his alibi pretty hard, and they made him account for his entire day. And he was like, I was with this person testing papers, and it all checked out. So, you know, again, this file, and I don't know who compiled this, and I found the link to this file, which I'll link in the show notes in Reddit. And it's just a collection of a copy copies of different police reports, state police, local police, some of their own research and news clippings from the time. And it goes through, again, in in the police notes, it has the actual text of the statements of Martin and the neighbor across the street. And so, I mean, I'm not an investigator, obviously, but from what I could tell, it looks like that part of it was very thorough. Um, But of course, you know, technologies aren't what they are today. They were able to confirm that the blood in the kitchen was type O, which was Joan's type, but they weren't able to do anything beyond that at that time. And I don't even think that, you know, this is so long ago. I don't even know that they would have thought to save any, any of the blood evidence. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. like a murder case where there's like bloody clothing it was yeah. bloody floor and maybe bloody paper towels, the coveralls. So, you know, I don't know if there's anything left to be tested now that the technology exists to even know that that was her blood. I mean, we know it's the same type, but lots of people out there with typo blood. And then the the purposefully running away, to me, only makes sense if those sightings of the woman walking down the highway weren't her. Correct. And if that were the case, then you would think that the person in the car was the person who helped her get away. But, you know, I don't know. It's hard to get into that mindset. But even if you didn't want to be a mom anymore, to leave a kid at a neighbor's and to leave a baby in a crib completely unattended, especially you're someone whose parents died in a house fire. So you have to have a frame of reference that leaving a baby unattended in a house can end in death. I I don't know. I mean, as a mom, it's hard to imagine. I know it happens, but it, it is hard to imagine someone doing it like that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's tough. And, you know, some investigators reported that depending on who they talked to, they got wildly different descriptions of who Joan was as a person. Some people said that she was very everyone kind of agreed that she was more introverted and she wasn't like anti-social but she didn't go out of her way but if she did interact with you she was pleasant but some people had her as like very dissatisfied other people had her as blissfully happy so i mean i think there's that part of it too that gives people a bit of a gone girl vibe is that she was a bit of a chameleon and People who didn't know her had a hard time getting a sense of her, what her motivations might have been from the descriptions of her. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, same. If I were to go missing, I don't have this, like, big public persona. I mean, podcast notwithstanding, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, like, my my life is pretty, you know, small, closed circle. Like, I have my friends. 
So for outsiders to try to get a sense of what my motivations might be would be pretty hard. I don't talk about that kind of stuff with many people. And yeah. that's how she was. So, but again, Martin, arguably the person who knew her best, just refused, said she would never leave her kids. Like she loved them dearly. They were everything. Also, the friend who lived in Bedford that I mentioned earlier, that was a college friend. And she also agreed. She loved her children and wouldn't wouldn't go willingly. So how much of the amnesia thing was wishful thinking for him? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard, but super sad. And I mean, I would watch a 10-part series about this case for sure. It's surprising that there's not, which is sort of the thesis of these types of episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Is like, we need some pop culture about this. And I feel like Martin is gone now. So, you know, her children are still alive, but it feels less like fresh and immediate that if you were to dig in it, it wouldn't feel lurid in the way that it might if you had done it 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Transitioning over to case two. Mm-hmm. While they're not related, they are sort of similar in the mysteriousness mm-hmm. and technically unsolved nature mm-hmm. of the cases. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about the life and mysterious death of Sananda Pushkar. Mm. Ever since her body was found in suite number 345 of Delhi's Leela Hotel in 2014, conspiracy theories and allegations have run rampant. Mm. But taking it back to the beginning, Sananda was born in 1962 in Bomai, India. She had two brothers. Her father was a lieutenant colonel in the army, and her mother took care of the family. Mm. By all accounts, she was independent, somewhat unassuming. So speaking of the girl that Sananda was, a high school classmate, friend, and the author of her biography, Sananda Mehta, said, quote, In school, she was a simple, shy, and unassuming girl. Once she came home to borrow clothes for a school fashion show, she didn't even know how to put on the basic makeup. The reality was she never needed makeup, as she was naturally very beautiful. Later, when I met her in 1983, she was much more confident and also gorgeous, Mm. end quote. Mm. So jumping forward through sort of the milestones of her life, while studying hotel management at the Government College for Women, Sananda married Sanjay Reina, Mm -hmm. a fellow hotel management graduate, and that was in 1987. The marriage was short-lived. They divorced in 88, the same year that Sananda graduated. Mm. So the next year, she moved to Dubai, where she worked as a receptionist, then in a boutique, then a travel agency, and eventually she started an event management business called Expressions. Mm. And she was well-known for her networking with sponsors and artists for fashion shows. Mm. It was around this time that she met and eventually married her second husband, Sujit Menon, in 1991. He had his own job, but he helped with the business. He lost his job, and a fashion show that they organized together lost a lot of money. Hmm. So Sujit returned to India with their son, and Sunanda joined Bozell Prime Advertising as a marketing manager, and she mm. was the sole breadwinner still in Dubai. Mm. 
A few years later, though, Sujit passed away, you know, leaving Sananda as a single mom. So her sister-in-law and her parents watched her son until she was able to bring him back to Dubai with her. I couldn't figure out exactly what it was, but he developed a communication disorder. Mm-hmm. So could be speech, could be cognition. I, mm-hmm. I, I just wasn't able to find that. Yeah. But with that diagnosis, she left Bozell Prime to spend more time with him. Mm-hmm. And she went on to open a joint retail business of artificial jewelry in mm-hmm. Dubai. Mm-hmm. And according to accounts from her, it was understandably a very difficult time she faced financial troubles while repaying her husband's debts Mm -hmm. uh, supporting her parents and her brother who was in engineering college as well as being a single mom to a kid with special needs Mm -hmm. Wow! so because of this therapy necessary for her son and because of the open and accessible health care system she immigrated to canada Mm. And that's where she became partner in an IT firm called Valley Resources through Sweat Equity mm. uh, after a friend in San Francisco introduced her to the founders. So again, you you do all the free work, and if the business takes off, then yeah. you get a, a stake of it. So Sweat Equity, if you're not familiar with that term. So interestingly, she went on to become wealthy during the dot-com bubble mm-hmm. of the 90s. So she bought her own home and a BMW, which I thought was a funny detail, but I guess it was to like indicate it wasn't just like a a Toyota. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Like she had enough spending money to have a fun car. Mm -hmm, Yeah. But, you know, as bubbles are wont to do, the dot-com bubble popped. Mm. She was on unemployment for four months. During this time, she took a course in emotional intelligence and then went on to join a company called Noble House International. And she organized human potential re-engineering programs for banks in Miami, Amsterdam, and Geneva. Which sounds like such really an fucking awful scary. way to like <laughs> abuse and manipulate your employees. <laughs> yes. That sounds very cultish. Yes. And of course, it's for banks. <laughs> but so kind of as we're developing this picture of who she was it's clear that though she probably didn't have a strong plan Sunanda was smart resourceful and capable I mean this amount of moves yeah reinventions like wow yeah totally so after some time she made her way back to Dubai this time with a Canadian passport to work as a general manager for a company called Best Homes and that Mm -hmm. was in 2004 Mm-hmm. And later, she joined TCOM Investments to work on the International Media Production Zone. So I was like, well, what is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's really interesting. So it launched in 2003. And so this International Media Production Zone, it's now just known as Dubai Production City. And it was the first dedicated community aiming to advance the development of the production industry in the region. So it's Mm. like they created a business hub enabling global and local publishing, printing, packaging industries. Mm. So it was all like, much like Dubai in general, it was all kind of planned out. Like Mm -hmm. we're going to just create this place that's like housing, living, retail, working. And it's a city now. But so she was in charge of working on this. And 
that is where she got the real money. Mm. She bought five apartments in Dubai. Wow. Including two three-bedroom apartments in the man-made palm tree islands. So, I don't like, know what that is. Oh, so like Dubai made a bunch of islands, and this this one is in like the shape of a palm tree, and it's like luxury living. Mm. Oh wow! So, money, money. Wow. So it was around this time that she met the man who would become her third husband, Sashi Tharoor, mm-hmm. at a party organized by her friend who happened to be a billionaire, Sunny Varki. So mm-hmm. again. Very different circumstances from where she was born, the businesses mm-hmm. she developed. She's just leveled up in this mm-hmm. uh, power, money, investments type of world. So Sashi was a public figure, quite the resume. Um, throughout his career, he, he was an international diplomat, politician, writer, public figure, member of parliament, and he was even the undersecretary general of the United Nations. Mm. So important, yeah. powerful type person. Kind of a big deal. They dated for a time and got married in 2010, and it was the third marriage for both of them. Mm, okay. This was also around the time of their first controversy. Mm. So it became known that Sunanda had been given over $8 million, like U.S. dollars, mm-hmm. of sweat equity in an organization called Rendezvous Sports World. And that company bid for the Indian Premier League cricket team, which represented Sashi's native state of Kerala. Mm-hmm. Sunanda was made director of the company just 18 days before the bid. So there were allegations that Sashi misused his ministerial position to ask for a free stake in the company and that Sunanda was acting as his proxy. Mm. And the controversy ultimately resulted in Sashi's resignation as minister. Mm. So... In her defense, Sunanda argued that she'd been invited to join Rendezvous because of her, quote, extensive international experience as a business executive, marketing manager, and entrepreneur, end quote. Fair enough. So in April of 2010, she announced that she had relinquished her stake in the company following the controversy. Mm. However, she did continue to hold the stake after she was told that there's no provision under the rules for surrender of shares at that stage. Hmm. So she was like, yeah, I'm giving it up. And then somebody was like, girl, you don't have to. And she's like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of how I broke it down in my head of trying to understand. Yeah, totally. So ultimately, though, I mean, yes, he resigned, but it seemed like they weathered the controversy fairly well, all things considered. Like, he still Mm -hmm. had a political career. He still had political aspirations, maybe even to prime minister. Mm. And things were quiet for a while. But on January 15th of 2014, Sunanda shocked her social media followers by accusing her husband of either having an affair or being stalked by a a woman named Mayor Tarar, a Pakistani journalist. Mm. Uh, She posted messages, uh, screenshots of messages, supposedly between the two. She accused uh, Mayor of stalking her, and she accused her of being an inter-service intelligence agent, which is Pakistan's premier intelligence agency. Yikes. 
So both Sashi and Mare denied the affair. In the media, Sashi said his Twitter account had been hacked, and Sunanda said she planned to seek a divorce. So the next day, (laughs) January 16th, a note titled, Joint Statement by Sunanda and Sashi Thoreau, was published on Sashi's Facebook page. The note stated that the couple was happily married and that some personal comments not intended for publication had been misrepresented after being posted to Twitter. The note also stated that Sunanda had been hospitalized after being ill and was seeking rest. Uh. So I don't know about the hospitalization, but Sunanda was being treated for lupus, just as a side note. Wow. The next day, on January 17th, 2014, Sunanda was found dead in room 345 of the Leela Palace Hotel in New Delhi. And that's where the couple had been temporarily living while their house was being renovated. Holy fuck. So right off the bat, it doesn't sound like she was hospitalized. Right. I mean, at a hotel, not a hospital. Yeah. So Sashi discovered the body and reported it to the police. The initial report suspected suicide, but later reports stated that the cause of death was unnatural. So Uh. the doctors at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences gave a preliminary autopsy report that just said it appeared to be a case of sudden unnatural death. She had injury marks on her body and nominal traces of anti-anxiety drugs in her stomach. The case was handed over to the Delhi police and just became murkier from there. Uh, and this is when Sadir Gupta, one of the doctors who performed the autopsy, claimed that he was being pressured to manipulate the report. Mm. So... Gupta said Sunanda had 15 injury marks on her body, most of which did not contribute to death. But there were two other marks, an injection mark and bite marks, which aroused suspicion. Um, yeah. And then the report also said that there was a presence of excess amounts of drugs in her stomach. But what drugs? Alprazolam. <laughs> so that's, I... that's Xanax. Yeah. So I may I, or may not be familiar with <laughs> most of the common psychotropics. <laughs> so then on October 10th of that year, so 2014, the medical team probing her death concluded that she died of poisoning. So then a couple months later, on January 6th, 2015, Delhi Police Commissioner uh, Bassi confirmed this finding, citing that Sananda did not commit suicide but was murdered, uh, but did not name a suspect. The investigation continued. Oh, my God. Uh, Sunanda, some of her samples were sent to Washington for examination by the FBI. Uh-huh. And they concluded that, like, the radiation in her viscera samples were within permissible levels and not a cause of death. Okay. And then, keeping it all, like, complex and swirling, one of the chief people pressuring the police to bring charges against Sashi was a man named Sabranian Swame, mm-hmm. who was a member of parliament who insisted that he poisoned her. But that just brought in more questions and conspiracy because Sashi's supporters say this is a political attack to neutralize a rival. Oh, uh, my God. So... <laughs> The police widened the scope of the probe. They began looking into the whole uh, Indian Premier League controversy that uh-huh. we talked about. Uh, they also questioned Mayor, the woman theoretically having the affair, who just 
continued to deny that that was true. But also maybe a spy. Yes. (laughs) And then to add more into the mix, there are reports that the crime scene was tampered with. So there was a vigilance report to probe the conduct of the investigating officers, and it pointed out lapses in the investigation. Used plates in her room were not collected by the investigators. Uh, On the day of the incident, Sunanda's body was moved from one room to another. So it's a mess. What a mess. I have so many questions. And the police have not officially revealed the findings of the full report. To, to this day. What? So interestingly, the hotel suite where she was found dead was sealed for over three years. Oh my God. And the last time police visited was in 2017, where they collected more evidence, including a half-filled glass of water, which was never collected in those three years, especially for a case where they believe it's poisoning. Right. So, And like, would anything still be in it? I mean, don't don't chemical compounds like break down in time and yeah so problems all over the damn place so then on may 15th of 2018 the police charged sashi with abetting the suicide of his wife it was a 3,000 page charge seat and they accused him of subjecting her to cruelty sought to bring him to court um, he was charged under sections 498A, which is a husband or relative subjecting a woman to cruelty, and 306, which is abetment of suicide by the police. So but not how murder. How can that be? Because, like, the ME said it was murder. So how can the charges not match? Maybe the thought was, we don't have enough for murder, and we uh, have enough for these. Mm. And that actually does come up and what comes next so Mm. sashi continued to refute all of the charges he was arrested Mm -hmm. charged essentially found guilty and then on appeal on august 18th 2021 a special Mm -hmm. court in delhi discharged him of all charges in her death after his lawyer successfully argued that since the cause of death had never been established it would be impossible to charge him with the vetting of a suicide what That makes no sense. If they can't prove how she even died, how can they prove that he helped it? But I thought they did. Like, I thought it was said it was poison. Yeah, but they don't know what or how. I mean, the autopsy was messed up from the beginning. The crime investigation was messed up. I mean, it like every single step of the way was compromised. But, like, this just happened. How can they not know how someone who died in 2014 died? I mean, paying off or forcing the people (laughs) to lie, the cops not to investigate. I mean, especially if there is the potential that there could be international intrigue happening. Yeah. So, again, probably also because it's so new, but there isn't much media about this case. Uh, hence, you know, the episode format that we're doing. Right. But the book by her friend that I mentioned, yeah. um, it's called The Extraordinary Life and Death of Sunanda Pushkar. And in an interview talking about, you know, why she wanted to write the book, she said, quote, her death was untimely, shocking, and is still mysterious. People have all kinds of judgments, and there were so many different versions of her story. 
I knew her as a very simple and straightforward girl, so I thought, let me try and trace her life, at least give people the context of the person she was, apart from detailing all the theories of her death. I really wanted to put across a correct and non-biased version of her life and death, end quote. Mm. So we'll probably never know. What does she think happened? Does she say? I think she purposefully. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's. She this doesn't want to get dead. Maybe. <laughs> I couldn't. Oh I couldn't believe the room was sealed for three years, and they didn't collect all of the evidence. That's what's so strange. It's like in some ways, like if you were orchestrating a cover up, wouldn't you try to get that room turned over as quickly as possible? So like in some ways they kind of went way way over but in other ways well and i simplified pieces of it it's very complex as i was like trying to get this narrative straight in that investigation from like 2014 to 2018 there were three different police commissioners and all three of them pursued different motives and different causes of death (laughs) what a mess it was There's no way to know. I mean, but what I do know is that Facebook message that was theoretically a joint statement was not true. (laughs) Right. There's no way. I mean, we know for a fact the hospitalization isn't what happened. Right. She told media she was going for a divorce. Like, Right. Even if I can't prove or say definitively, I'm certain he did this and this is how, prime suspect. (laughs) But also, if we were going to just pretend like we're FBI profilers for a moment, she does not seem to fit the profile of someone who would commit suicide. Like, every step of the way up to that point, she had been such a survivor. Mm -hmm. And, like, bouncing back from, like, adversity after adversity. And even, I would think that if you were someone who, like, let's say your husband cheats on you and you're the type to, like, turn that inward on yourself and like be despondent and maybe become suicidal you wouldn't also be the person who would leak screenshots and like like that's a very like directing your anger outward kind of Mm -hmm. action and suicide is like directing your pain and stuff inward well and that's part of why i went into such detail about her like career history like she is a person who reinvents herself right And super rich. I know money doesn't solve your problems, but, like, she was connected to her family. Right. She had a lot of opportunity financially. Yeah. But the bite marks, the injection. injection. Yeah. I mean, the injection makes me even feel more like maybe (laughs) there is some, like, spy espionage type of thing going on. Totally. Totally. I have a million questions. Like, I would watch a 10-part series on this for sure yes and i know we've joked about it like if our podcast ever becomes so successful maybe we we turn it into a most foul production company and you know tell some of these stories that don't have the pop culture lens and understanding right well and this is one that still feels like it could be solvable Like, it's not that long ago, you know? Eight years ago is not that long compared to a lot of the cases that we talk about where it's, there's just, like, no chance, you know? Barring some miracle. Yeah, the problem here is just, you know, fucked up from the jump. Right. 
like you can't even trust the autopsies. But like the dude is still alive. I mean, I didn't put it you... in. He had all this quote about like freedom and being vindicated and Ugh. and there is a tiny chance. <laughs> I suppose, but I was like, I'm not giving him, I'm not reading that here. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, we can say with a pretty high degree of certainty he was a dick and probably like a shitty husband. That's pretty certain. Mm -hmm. And that Facebook message, the joint state, if it was a joint statement, it would have been on her Twitter too. (laughs) Right. Totally. Totally. Creepy. Yeah. I just... I went so deep in the rabbit hole on this. I I can't believe I like kept it so brief because I guess I just kept cutting more because it was so technical about the changes of the police and the ways the investigation changed. But if anybody wants, there's a real Reddit rabbit hole to join on this case as well. This one is so interesting. And I just like, okay, so to be that guy for a minute though, like, supporting the idea that it isn't him if your wife like leaks intimate messages on social media and the next day you do a statement and blah 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 and you say you're happily married like would you then kill her the very next day like I mean he's not a dumb guy right he's got like eight million degrees and blah blah whatever like how dumb to then murder like wait but a if while. He thought, if he thought he could control her and intimidate her and then that joint statement he does it and then he gets the realization that she is not submitting. Right. Then maybe but I mean again, like from his supporter side, so like this happens, it's like a big public embarrassment. Uh, what if a political rival killed her because they right. knew he would go down? <laughs> right, 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 right. Or they were involved in Pakistan, like the government somehow wanted to come in and clean up the mess, like feared that she knew things and she mm-hmm. was like unhinged enough to release them. So there are some scenarios where it could be someone other than him, mm-hmm. potentially. Oh my God. It's crazy. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure there will be more, more culture yeah. from this case. It's just yeah. so current, but oh, gosh. But maybe like do a sting, get someone undercover in one of his businesses and like get him to talk or You saying that just reminded me of yeah. like the word undercover mm-hmm. in your story when it mm-hmm. was like, well that was the car of an undercover cop. It's like, well who's to say an undercover cop didn't come kill her? Right. And then come back. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Because everybody agreed that that car was there before 433, which is the first that the police ever heard of it, officially. So that's another lens I would be looking into on the conspiracy theories on yours. Yeah. Oh, my God. So mysterious. But both of them linked in the sense that being a woman is, is hard and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Uh, Listeners, we really hope you enjoyed this one. If you are up to date on these cases and have any theories, please, we would love to hear them. Totally. Totally. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, these go on the list of if we ever do, like, a contained cycle on one particular case. I think these, these could go in that bucket. 
Ah, so fascinating. So fascinating, yeah. Ooh. Well, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Bye bye. Please head over to Apple Podcast and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 